Hi, and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast looking at international politics from Berlin with me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash-Burnett. Join us for an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. Hello and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and together with my friend, the journalist Aaron Gash Burnett, who specializes in German politics, we'll be looking at the world from Germany and looking at how Germany is seen around the world. Hello and guten Abend from me. Uh, I'm a German-Canadian journalist here in Berlin, as Ben said, uh, who's been covering Germany, its politics and its foreign policy for six years now. Over the next 10 episodes, we'll be exploring how this influential, complex country at the heart of Europe sees and engages with the world around it. And we'll be looking at the foreign policy that comes from that worldview its pros and cons, and how it's changing or, well, not, as the case may be. I'm very excited to kick off our inaugural episode. Today we'll be talking about Germany's current so-called watershed moment in its foreign policy following February 24th last year, the Zeitenwende. That's a big reason we wanted to do this podcast at all, because it really gets into the heart of why it's not just important to understand Germany, but to understand it now and we'll return to that theme throughout this entire season. That's right, Aaron. And that's also the reason that we launched the uh, action group Zeitenwende here at the German Council on Foreign Relations, or DGAP, the Deutsche Gesellschaft für Auswärtige Politik, as it's known in German, which brings together uh, politicians, officials and experts from Germany, but also from around Europe and across the Atlantic, um, to try and internationalize the Titan Bender. And that's something um, that it's important to emphasize from the get-go, that we actually do a little bit differently here. This isn't about understanding Germany alone. We've deliberately set out to internationalize the Titan Bender because no country's an island. No, not even the UK where I grew up, which they found out pretty quickly after Brexit. Germany too has found out that it can't change without its allies. And it's been variously encouraged, pressured, and criticized by its partners over the last two years. What's become increasingly clear, though, is that it needs those partners on board if its change is to succeed, for Germans, but also for its friends outside. After all, foreign policy is actually supposed to work on, through, and with foreigners. Yet too often we still look at countries in isolation, Polish this, British that, or we zoom out to the level of the global without truly understanding the relations that are actually so important in shaping domestic societies as well as their foreign policy. And that's one reason we started this podcast and why we called it Berlin Side Out, because it's about understanding foreign affairs in a genuinely international way. And that's a better way to understand Germany as well as to understand international politics. And even if both Aaron and I are quite international, and so are many of our guests, we are looking at international affairs from Berlin. And we really recognize that this gives a particular point of view. And indeed, as many of you know, Germany is particular in many ways. And more and more people have realized that over the last couple of years. But it's especially important to give an international audience a better understanding of how Germany sees the world and to give Germans a clearer idea of how their country is seen abroad, especially by its allies and partners. And we're not just talking about politicians or the diplomats who make foreign policy on a daily basis. We're talking about whole societies. And keeping the people firmly in focus while talking about geopolitics is really important to our approach. But as well as 
understanding Germany better, we think that this relational way of looking through Germany's key relationships and interactions gives a better view of international politics in general. Yeah, that's right, Ben. And that's also why we're looking uh, at why an outside perspective, or rather an inside-outside perspective, see what we did there, right? Uh, hence our name, uh, is uh, important uh, during this time of Sight and Venda. So kicking off this uh, endeavor, this adventure, we start a little bit closer to home. Today's something of a family show to get our season kicked off. And our first guest is, well, uh, the boss, <laughs> Dr. Roderick Parks is the director of the Alfred von Oppenheim Center for the Future of Europe here at the Council. Uh, Roderick, what is the action group that uh, we've mentioned and why was it set up? We're doing things differently, but Germany's also trying to do things differently. Are we at something of an inflection point or crisis moment for German foreign policy? I mean, the jury's still out, right? And, and that's why we've set up the, the action group to make sure that it actually leads to something. I mean, Aaron, you asked why it's necessary for people like us to try to understand Germany. And that's, I think, the answer to your question, Ben. I mean, in a crisis, Germany tends to respond with a very self-referential perspective, tends to measure progress in its response by how readily it breaks national taboos or leaps across national hurdles and then expects some kind of congratulations. I think it's our job, we've said this in past conversations, to be candid friends to Germany. But that means understanding how Germany ticks. It means helping Germans to work out in the deluge of scrutiny and self-reflection what their national strengths are and to work out how Germany fits in in Europe and transatlantically. That's what we're doing. And if Germany is in a crisis or an inflection point, I think we need to work against that German response, which is to say we'll take on the burden for this and to make it a bit of a sort of grim national reform effort. It doesn't need to be that. So if we can see where opportunities for cooperation are, that's where we can be useful. Absolutely. And indeed, if it's national alone, it's not going to work and it's going to be counterproductive. And so trying to break out of those silos is something that we are very keen on on trying to push. One of the existential uh, questions that motivated Ben and I to undertake this podcast in the first place, right? Uh, and that is the uh, really huge question of what is Seitenwende? Uh, it's a big idea. It's a big topic. Uh, and luckily, we have no shortage of expertise in the Action Group family. Uh, so a big welcome to Action Group project assistants, Julian Stockler and Janik Hartmann today. Good day, gentlemen. Hello, very good day. Uh, thanks very much, Aaron. Pleasure to be here. I get to experience pretty much firsthand the frustration among many partners with German sort of reluctance to helping Ukraine in particular, but then also to uh, with its sort of half-cooked security policy and its geopolitical posture more widely. And frankly, I was just really shocked by just how slowly and passively we've acted in the early days and weeks of Russia's invasion. Um, it has picked up, but uh, not, not as much as I would have hoped for. Um, so that's part of the reason why I'm here. And it's important to note that it's really never been about uh, shaming Germany, quite the opposite, about helping it to, to do better. And I think we're still underestimating just how, um, how much um, that sort of had negative consequences. And I think it really is then about um, helping Germans to act more effectively and to do so together with partners, what my colleagues fittingly coined a team power. Thanks very much, Julian. Uh, great to have you as part of the family. Um, and indeed, for many of us, this isn't just political, it's also personal. There are aspects to do with where we live, how we can live, how we can imagine our futures that are in intimately 
bound up with the questions that actually politicians are wrestling with right now and the answers that they'll find to the kind of challenges that have been posed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, alongside Julian, we have Yannick. Yannick Hartmann, welcome to you. Hello and good day from my side as well. It is a big idea, but what's at stake is even bigger. The media coverage over the Zeitwende has for the most part focused on Germany's underfunded Bundeswehr and how it can regain its defense readiness and also stand true to its NATO commitments. We still have massive procurement problems that we need to overcome. We have a debt break that significantly is limiting the investment we can and should make. And we still see a coalition whose political motivation to support Ukraine and help it win this war is still uneven and at times not even willing to say so. But the debate around the Zeitenwende stretches way beyond the military. We have witnessed an unprecedented success when it came to getting off Russian energy dependency, something even many energy experts thought could not be accomplished in such a short time. We built an LNG terminal within seven months and even made it for winter without Russian gas. This is also the Zeitenwende and this is progress. But the list of homework Germany has to do is still quite extensive and long. Thanks, Yannick, indeed. And to help with that homework, um, we also have two members of our action group joining us. We look from both an inside-out and an outside-in perspective, um, and we're delighted to welcome to the show uh, Minna Orlando, who will be known to many of you uh, from her, her excellent work on Twitter, where she lives. Um, <laughs> Are we supposed Minna to say formally known as Twitter? Then don't tell my address publicly on the podcast. <laughs> Sorry, just doxed Minna by accident there on the, <laughs> live on the show. Um, Minna's, Minna Orlando, as many of you know, is an expert on German foreign and security policy um, and Northern European security. And she's currently working at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs back in, in Helsinki after living, studying and working in Berlin for over 10 years. Minna, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me and like great, great project, great podcast. Better uh, to be here with you guys. Thanks very much indeed. We're looking forward to hearing more from you um, on the, your thoughts on the Titan vendor and also on how it relates to questions in Northern Europe in just a few seconds. Um, but we also have uh, Britta Jakob joining us today. She's the senior manager uh, of global governmental affairs at the uh, large company Bayer, uh, but previously worked in the German Federal Foreign Office and as a senior policy advisor to Germany's Green Party, uh, specializing in foreign and security policy. Britta, welcome to the show. Uh, let's, let's start with you. When Olaf Scholz used the word Zeitenwende in the speech that he gave on the 27th of February, just three days after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, how, how significant was that? Well, first of all, thank you um, and hello. Uh, it's really great to be here on this exciting uh, kickoff episode. I'm really, really happy to be here. Yeah, how, how uh, significant was this um, speech by the Chancellor? I would say very significant at that time. And I think that many people really felt relieved, including me, that the chancellor and this government really understood how serious this uh, brutal attack on Ukraine on the 24th of February was, um, not only to Ukraine, of course, but to Europe as a whole and beyond. And that um, therefore he would address um, three days after that uh, attack, the public and the German Bundestag in a special session. But with this, um, of course, also came great expectations. And I must say that the speech itself really contained, in my opinion, all the right aspects. Um, the long-term support for Ukraine, strengthening defense, NATO and Bundeswehr, spending 2% of the GDP for defense, quote, year after year. 
Um, so basically meeting the NATO 2% goal. Nuclear sharing, uh, necessary tornado replacement, reducing energy dependency. Also, he talked about cooperating with partners and allies in defending our common values, our democracy, um, securing our critical infrastructure, fighting against disinformation and strengthening the European Union. So with this, um, you can see that it was quite a comprehensive um, speech, which I really liked. Um, but that is why I was really, really hopeful when I heard this speech, um, because many of these aspects um, I just mentioned have been opposed by the Chancellor's Party, uh, especially by the SPD for years or even decades. They have been in favor of Nord Stream 2 um, and even supported the idea of a European security architecture from Lisbon to Vladivostok um, even until um, or after 2014. So um, I think when you heard that, you would have thought, okay, this is a major shift um, that we are seeing now. Um, the only thing that struck me already at that time was that the, when it comes to the term Zeitenwende, the chancellor never used active language um, to describe his ideas of how we should shape the Zeitenwende as Germany. Instead, he was using the term, quote, we are experiencing a Zeitenwende. This is something passive and not active. So, and looking at where we stand um, today, um, it has become clear that there's a huge gap, I would say, between what the Chancellor outlined as necessary in the speech and what is really done. So the government, in my opinion, simply hasn't walked the talk yet. And one quick follow-up uh, to this, uh, how much of what was in that speech was even necessarily new in German security discussions. I know, for example, your own party, uh, Britta, that you have been advising for a long time, the Greens, uh, have at the very least wanted tougher rhetoric uh, for a very long time. And it seemed as if in this particular speech, maybe we were finally going to get it. Yeah, that's what I mean by, um, I, I don't think that we we were surprised in a way by the content of the speech, but but much more relieved, like finally they got it, finally. It's, right. it's out there because all of these things, as you um, said, have been part of the discussion for years, but they, or the majority, let's say, or governing parties before have been opposing this. And now you would you you would have had this feeling, finally, finally, we are there. Germany understood what is at stake. And that is why um, the disappointment is so big, at least for my part. But uh, I think I share this with many people also in this country and abroad. Mm -hmm. Even in this room, perhaps. Even in this room, maybe. <laughs> Minna, let's, let's go to you and ask about those expectations as well, because the, the speech certainly did raise expectations abroad. What were those expectations and, and have they been met? I think um, why the, the expectations skyrocketed so massively was exactly what Britta just uh, described, that there was this feeling like, wow, Germany finally got the memo, now they are going to get serious about this. And exactly for those reasons that the speech included all the right points, uh, it ticked all the boxes, it sounded really good. And I think um, the disappointment was even greater because like, then it turned out that in a maybe somewhat typical way for Germany and the German political system, the actual negotiations about the implementation of uh, 
how to tighten when they in a way, um, started after the speech. So apparently Scholz hadn't like really coordinated that very well um, within the coalition. And, and then you had this, like, then the, the difficult negotiation started. And then for some months, like not much happened or like you didn't really see much coming from Germany in terms of implementation. And because the moment was so intense and uh, Ukraine was... Um, was in this very like fragile moment of like really needing all our support and stuff. So um, that was kind of um, why there was this like self-made kind of uh, explosion of expectations, I would say. And um, I think that people like Germany's partners and allies understand that Germany is not a past country to change and that is actually not a bug but a feature um, that um, it's just the way the German political system works for example that um, you know like especially these kind of very big changes of course just take time but in this situation you don't you didn't really have the time and and um, there was certainly this this what Broderick described earlier is kind of expectation on the German side or you got the impression that that on the German government side there was frustration about not getting like applauded enough for the steps that had been taken and all the national debris that were broken and I think the partners did appreciate it but there was just this expectation that things would go faster because the situation was absolutely exceptional and I think this year it's been somewhat better but I I fear that Germany is a little bit in danger of like over pledging and promising and then not delivering uh, in a timely enough manner. Thanks so much, Minna. And that's that's another aspect I think we need to be very conscious of when talking about the Titan vendor. Um, as it relates to what, what Julian mentioned before, this isn't about shaming Germany. It's about fully understanding the value of what a an engaged Germany that played its full role in the team would actually be. And the benefit of that for European security, the benefit of that for allies would be massive. And so the frustration at not getting that, having had the expectations raised that finally Germany was... Uh, about to realize its potential, um, I think lead, shows the, the reason for a lot of the um, lashing out and the bashing that's been um, thrown around uh, this year. This, I, I also want to pick up on something that Britta said, this um, notion of the Titan vendor as something that happens to you or mm-hmm. something that you do. And you just then, Minna, said how to Titan vendor, how to do it. So this, this I think, is also a key part of the whole equation. Britta, is the Titan vendor something you do or should it be? Of course, I would say. I mean, yes, it's about shaping this Zeitman. It's about shaping uh, policy. And plus, it's about shaping public opinion also, because that is also something that I, I'm witnessing that it's much more, um, you know, when you always try to follow public opinion and then you need a lot of time to think about things, then we have huge debates and there's a lot of hesitation and no one really knows where the course is going then, of course, you don't win over anyone, basically, not in your own country, but not abroad. Yes, of course, something um, brutal happened, but it is um, the major task of politicians and political decision makers to make their decisions and to shape our common future. And this is something that uh, certainly, Ben, you've uh, talked a lot about, uh, this proactive versus reactive approach to German foreign policy. And over the season, I'm sure that this exact uh, 
theme of discussion will appear uh, several times. Yeah, uh, those those who seek to try and seize the future, to shape the future, and so on. Maybe we call them the neo idealists. <laughs> I see what you did there, um, but I I want to go to Roderick here for a quick second because uh, Schultz's original speech was uh, quite noteworthy for its defense and military spending pledges, and certainly um, from the perspective of the international press, which I write a lot for, um, it really focused on that aspect in particular. Uh, but uh, how we understand Seitenwende is quite a bit broader than that, right? So from foreign and security policy, we saw that shift into energy policy, which then, of course, has implications for Germany's climate policy. How can it meet its climate goals? Again, not looking at the green in the room uh, <laughs> on that. No one mentioned nuclear power. Um, but then understanding exactly how technological change can help Germany adapt to those changed economic conditions and what that, what in fact all of that has on Germany's ability to trade or desirability of trade with different partners. This is why we're doing these things. This is why we need to think across policy areas. So that for me is, is some of the themes that we've had to pick up as the action group to say, well, these promises are nice, but if you don't want them to cancel each other out and if you want to take decisions and trade-offs between them well, this is this is the bigger thinking. Just to go back to this question of whether Titan Vendor is passive or active, a German habit, I think, is to do what Merkel did and say there is no alternative. That's the easiest thing when you're taking difficult decisions is to pretend that you've reached a kind of crisis point that there are no other options than the one difficult thing. So this is Titan Vendor is something that happens to us rather than something that we actively try to shape. I think we're trying to push against that. Certainly I am. So it can't be Schultz's Titan Vendor is an accident that happens to us because I think that's how you get to these international manufactured diplomatic crises that Schultz dithers because he doesn't like to take difficult decisions on what support to give to the Ukrainians. And we reach a point where everybody in the room is shouting at the Germans to do the obvious thing. If we could learn here to act a little bit sooner and take active choices about what Titan Vendor looks like, then I think we'd win a lot of political and diplomatic capital. But cancel me, I don't mind that. Well, I do have this question about the fact that you just said that only a few days before he gave that speech, he cancelled the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But is that perhaps another example of having continued with this policy until it became completely untenable? And then it becomes, as, as Angela Merkel used to say, alternativlos, without alternative, and then you're forced to do it, and then you are, are sort of backed into a corner. Was there any sort of forward planning uh, about even this economic policy that fits in? If you look at how Titan Vendor has played out in the energy sphere, I mean, for me, that's an enormous change. I'm, I'm sitting next to a green who's, who's looking skeptical at me. But I mean, nevertheless, like it is impressive, the degree of change. Has it been badly managed in some ways? Are we hopping from one set of dependencies into another? Yes. Nevertheless, these are active decisions, I think. And I would underline that that's a good thing. Impressive, but not planned, which is... Okay. Yeah. yeah and in some ways, that Nord Stream uh, issue really highlights the lack of integrated thinking there was beforehand which as late in late 2021, Schultz was still insisting that Nord Stream was a private sector only issue. Right. It was purely a private sector business issue without factoring in the geopolitics of it. And getting business to understand geopolitics, getting government to understand the geopolitics of business um, is a key part of what we think the Titan Vendor is actually about in terms of taking that integrated approach because 
these issues have um, impacts that spill over different policy areas. But I think what worries me is that we go from one vendor to another, and it's this artificial thing of debating things, feeling like you've thought through the options, saying it's impossible, it's impossible, it's impossible, then something happens that makes it possible. And actually, you haven't thought through the options properly. You've just said that's impossible for 10 years. So in a completely unplanned way, you completely change course. An energy vendor 10, 15 years ago, I'm afraid, leads up in many ways to Titan vendor. You know, it's the energy dependency that we created with the energy change 10, 15 years ago that creates the problems that we have with Russian hydrocarbons. Where does a badly planned Titan vendor leave us in 10, 15 years if we get it wrong? What's the next vendor? All right, shut up, Roderick. And we are going to come back to that. Question. That's that's right. Um, and some, somewhere between impossible and inevitable, there are a whole range of different uh, policy options that could be discussed, could be properly debated. Um, if the right circumstances were in place. And it's about creating those circumstances, creating those conditions that I think a lot of us um, who work on the Titan vendor are focused on on that process of ensuring they actually do um, exist. And we are going to get into the future of the Titan vendor and how we judge it in here in a few minutes. But I want to go back up to Helsinki for a second. Finland has had a massive rethink of its security policy as well. Uh, it's joined NATO uh, it did already, of course, uh, have a high level of military readiness uh, and a lot of reserve forces uh, to begin with, but now it's made that uh, big step to join uh, the North Atlantic Military Alliance. How are some countries in the rest of Europe seeing the German Seitenwende, and how different is that from how Germans see it? There are kind of different perceptions, uh, even among the Nordic countries. The Norwegians are quite excited about um, Germany's uh, newfound interest in uh, defense things. And uh, of course, this feeling is quite mutual because Norway became Germany's most important natural gas uh, supplier um, after Germany uh, managed this um, this process of getting rid of the, the Russian gas, which was, of course, accelerated by the fact that, that Russia itself uh, shut off the gas tap in September 2022. So um, ever since um, Germany has had a very existential and very vital uh, interest in uh, cooperation with Norway, especially in terms of maritime infrastructure, um, to, to make sure that that uh, that is uh, that supply is guaranteed and there's a lot of uh, positive synergy there right now between Norway and Germany and and the Norwegians tend to be really like really positive about Germany right now you don't hear much bashing there <laughs> definitely not and and uh, so that's quite interesting and then for example in Finland the perception was quite the opposite because I think that um, Especially within the EU, um, Finland has been uh, almost this kind of loyal sidekick of Germany sometimes. Uh, that's certainly how Finland was to an extent perceived in especially Southern Europe in the Euro crisis, for example. But anyways, there has been this very strong perception of Germany as a like-minded partner and like reliable and that Finland can kind of count on Germany to... Um, like represent our interests too. And then there was this big moment um, in the spring of 2022. And this was actually uh, in the buildup of the invasion when Scholz was in Moscow and uh, kind of promised Putin like in an almost joking way that there will be no NATO Eastern uh, enlargement uh, in his term during his term of office. 
And I generally believe that that they didn't cross Scholz's mind that anyone would like, you know, uh, connect that to a potential Finnish NATO membership also because it seemed so unlikely still at that point. So um, that was a big shock to Finland because uh, that kind of uh, triggered some fears that Germany might actually prioritize, you know, negotiating with, with Russia instead of like, you know, uh, clearly supporting our NATO membership. And there was even this concern that Germany might be opposed to Finland's NATO membership. So there was this moment of like, wait a minute, are we actually as like-minded as we always assumed? And this has been kind of a process. Arguably, you could say that this year Germany has had a similar experience with the new Finnish government, uh, which doesn't seem very like-minded at the moment. We have a center-right government that... Um, has had some issues with with ministers. So um, there has been maybe this kind of uh, mutual process of disenchantment, I would say. Thanks very much, Minna, for touching on the Nordics and their uh, view of the German site in Venda. Um, We're going to have a quick look at how some other countries, uh, particularly some of Ukraine's strongest supporters, uh, Yannick, you've done uh, some recent work on this. How is Germany stacking up if we're looking at the Baltics in particular? We actually wrote an article in March about the Zeitenwende beyond Germany. And one could say we have been too frustrated with Germany's Zeitenwende. We have to look how other countries do it better. But for the Baltics, Russia's invasion of Ukraine came at no surprise. And they have long been warning of Russian imperialism. The Baltic states too have a history of being under occupation by both Nazi Germany and for longer the Soviet Union before regaining their independence in 1991. So that meant that they didn't have to reassess Russia in the way that Germany had to reassess, right? That's a difference that you're, you're pointing to there. Exactly. And so what did that mean then in practice? Well, it meant in practice that instead of resting on their laurels, they sprang into action. Even before February 22, they sent weapons to Ukraine and quickly upped their support afterward. And this to a degree where the Baltic states are the three largest contributors of military and humanitarian equipment to Ukraine relative to to GDP, with Estonia at number one, shortly followed by Latvia and Lithuania. Germany is at number 17 in terms of GDP, but this is not to say that Germany's support has not been substantial in absolute terms. When you look at total commitments, we rank right behind the U.S., and the UK with 10.7 billion in total. Yet we still could send more. But the support for Ukraine cannot just be measured monetarily. Words followed by actions carry a large meaning and Estonia's Prime Minister Kaya Kalas has been at the forefront of this. But I'm sure Ben has something to say about that too. How well you know me, Yannick. Indeed I do. Um, and it's not, not just been Kaya Kallas, although she's been one of the strongest figureheads. Also, uh, Gabrielas Landsbergis, the foreign minister of Lithuania, um, Artis Pabriks, who until recently was uh, deputy prime minister of Latvia, and other politicians from across the Baltic states, including the chairs of all their foreign affairs committees, have been among the most vocal supporters for Ukraine and also among those most vocally encouraging Germany, among others, to do more. All of this, I think, really begs the question, what is it we actually mean by the Titan vendor? And because that then affects how we how we judge it. And as you rightly mentioned, Germany has actually moved quite a long way in absolute terms with what it's sending to Ukraine, not only in terms of the monetary value of it, but also the quality of it. And now we, of course, we have the debate over Taurus cruise missiles um, and so on. So there has been movement. But the point here, I think that we'd like to highlight is that from the perspective of certain other countries, that movement wasn't necessary. 
for them to take. So the movement in mindset wasn't needed in the Baltics. The movement in societal readiness wasn't needed in Finland, um, as Minna highlighted, but that whole of society approach to security. And in a way that, that echoes also with what we see in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, so the Czechs, for example, who were the first to send main battle tanks to Ukraine, shortly followed by the Poles, didn't need to go through the same process of reassessment. And so that there's different aspects to the Titan vendor that we've heard about there, whether it's reducing energy dependency, as, as Roderick said, um, which moved relatively fast, um, even if it created other, other issues. But on uh, those deeper underlying issues of geopolitics, Germany had a really long way to go. And I think most of us would agree it's not there yet in terms of getting where it needs to be to play the role that it can. And that's something that we tried to look at last year when writing um, a piece called What Titan Vendor, which was a... (laughs) <laughs> and you provocatively um, titled that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, argued, it was, it was yeah. a double title, right? Because it was saying, okay, what, what is the Titan vendor we're seeing? Which, what Titan vendor are we getting? Which you could have understood as which Titan vendor? Or really, what Titan vendor? Is there actually a Titan vendor there? And this then led to us, us thinking through the work of the action group, how would we actually judge some of this? Um, against what basis do we actually understand the Titan vendor and so on? And that um, led into a second piece that we then wrote later, followed on the discussions there, which gave four dimensions across which you can actually judge a Titan vendor. The first one being ambition. Does the Titan vendor go far enough? Is it ambitious enough? Um, Second, speed. Is change being made fast enough? Uh, Did the necessary steps happen quickly enough? And over what time frame should it be judged? Third, depth. Is the change actually sufficiently rooted to become politically sustainable? Would it actually catch with the public as well as with politicians. And fourth and lastly, is the Titan vendor internationally aware? Is it actually being done in coordination and proper cooperation with partners and allies? And that goes all the way from looking at the measures that are being taken right the way upstream to how Germany and its partners collectively calculate their interests and understand how those relate to their values. So across all of those different fields, we've looked at how um, how Germany's Titan vendor could be judged. I'd like to come back to our resident Germans for a moment, or at the very least those who have been resident in Germany the longest. Uh, Britta, Yannick, Yulan, um, does it feel like a Titan vendor is happening in Germany? And what I mean by this question are, what are some of the biggest differences you notice uh, between how it's talked about here, for example, on German TV, on the talk shows that we are all so familiar with, and how it might be perceived from the outside. Well, Seidenwende happening in Germany a few months ago, I would have argued that yes, uh, because of the major contribution that we uh, talked about that Germany um, all, um, already supported Ukraine with. Um, but I've never been too optimistic, to be honest, about the question if Germany could really live up to the expectations that many partners and allies had about the Zeitenwende, just because I couldn't really quite imagine um, a real shift, a real watershed moment that would be shaped by Germany. I think that that German reluctance to change really seems to be higher um, than in other countries. I think it's a problem of um, of lack of political leadership um, that clearly communicates all the, uh, also the opportunities that change entails. Um, change is more and more immediately associated with fear and with risk uh, by the majority of people rather than with opportunities and, and uh, chances. So, and I think um, the reason is, or one of the reasons is, because Germany has been managing standstill for more than a decade. And this was very much misinterpreted 
here and abroad, I would say, um, as stability, as securing prosperity. But the opposite is true. I mean, in a radically changing world, change creates stability and not standstill and not hesitation and not fear. Um, so I think this would be really, really key um, to have a real Zeitman in Germany to develop the strategic thinking and strategic communication and to stand up for values and principles and really try to convince people to follow that path. So looking at that today, um, I would, would argue that Zeitenwende might not be happening at all in Germany. Oh. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. As, as I said, I think it's a lack of, of leadership. And we talked about that, that we only see actions um, when the pressure is too high. Um, there's no, no real vision and no real political um, will to shape this Zeitenwende. Maybe we could call it a Zeitenwende if we uh, looked at um, defense for something that Germany would really deliver on, because this was the area that Germany was um, or has been very much reluctant, of course, to, um, to have more power due to understandable reasons of its own history. But there again, we see the removal of the 2% goal from the budget um, law. We see the insane debates about Taurus and these, um, all of these uh, technical criteria that are now, now debating. Um, we see not a strong support for NATO uh, membership of Ukraine and all of these things. And uh, Yannick was talking about it reform of Bundeswehr, of the procurement system, all of that. This is not happening. When we look at energy, yes, a lot has been achieved, and this is really impressive, but I would argue this was anyway on the agenda of a green-led energy ministry. And of course, it was accelerated by the war. It was very much pushed, but, but it was there already as plans, as ideas. And if we have a look at economic security, economic policy, look at the national security strategy, look at the China strategy that Germany uh, recently published. It's not really a strategy, I would say, and it was written in the light of this war on aggression. So it's basically a doc document, the national security strategy, um, for example, that pleases anyone. Everything is security and then at the end of the day, nothing is security. These foreigners and their Germany bashing is terrible. Please, Minna, go ahead. Yeah, about the, the outside perception, for example, this uh, permanent brigade in Lithuania of uh, 40,000 troops um, that Germany just recently pledged to uh, set up. Um, it's, it's very uncertain like um, how and when that, that will, um, will be done. And um, I think that has led to this kind of skepticism towards... Uh, whatever German uh, leadership right now says, because like if, if you don't see deeds following the words, uh, there's this kind of credibility gap between um, between the pledges and then the reality. Or the government is not putting, putting uh, their money where their mouth is, so you don't really have the long-term financing for a sustainable settlement. So, so that kind of really decreases the credibility of these pledges. But this question of pledge and delivery, and I'll come to, to Yannick and Julian in one second here, This question of pledge and delivery, a lot of uh, those who defend Olaf Scholz and defend the chancellery have said that he's extremely cautious and will only pledge things that he's certain can be delivered, which is really called into question by this issue of the 2% commitment. That is something that he has promised to deliver and will now not deliver. Whether that's to do with the politics of the coalition, 
doesn't matter. He is the one who said from the beginning, this is Chefzacker, as it's known in German. The boss is calling the shots and he styled himself as that boss calling those shots and has failed to deliver on the 2% commitment, which is the very, very baseline, very bare minimum that allies were looking for from Germany for this. So I think that points to some of the skepticism that uh, Britta was voicing a second ago. Yannick and Julian, from your perspectives, um, is there a Titan vendor happening in Germany? I think half of this room still has to recover from Britta's harsh assessment. <laughs> but I, I do very uh, much... Not, not this half. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. I think maybe that's an overestimation. <laughs> <laughs> but I do very much share that the point of political, political will is very important and very much lacking in, in the current debate. The question get more and more difficult to answer with a resounding and confident yes, if it ever has been. I wouldn't say excitement is not happening, but it is certainly not living up to our expectations or those that have been building up through shorter speech. And as Roderick rightfully mentioned, we shouldn't forget that this speech was written and held at the early stage of the war, at the point in time when it was thought that Kiev will fall within the next days. And this, thankfully, did not turn out to be true. And while this explains the backpedaling, it still doesn't justify it. We could now closely look again in all the different areas of the Zeitenwende and have a long debate about whether the changes are cutting deep enough or whether they happen happening at the right place. But it was it would probably leave us in saying it is somewhere, but in too many of these areas it is in hiding. Or as Ben said it, it is here just unevenly distributed. For me, it is now about not making the same mistakes again. Germany has to show a learning curve here. Be prepared should China invade Taiwan. Diversify not just in terms of energy, but all supply chains that inherit critical technologies, especially in the private sector. De-risk where it should and can and stop hiding behind others. Always look to the left, to the US before daring to make a move and do all this with consistency so that our allies finally understand our interests. I think between what you and Britta said, you've got a manifesto waiting to happen. This is a political platform being built. Julian, what would you add into that mix? We really don't see any active Zeitman for sure. And within Germany, there has been a lot of self-praise about um, how far we've come in German debates among the um, government representatives, especially the chancellor's party. If we judge that from the very low baseline from where we started, it's just not far enough in absolute terms. And that's what, uh, what matters ultimately. And that's how partners perceive it. And, you know, Germany's change certainly does not hold up to those expectations such as we want to become a European security guarantor, which Germany so far really isn't. Really, we're talking about every kind of weapon and we're having the same debates over and over again. Is that going to lead to escalation? And we look at the evidence and we see it's not. You know, if you look, for example, at France and the UK, which have delivered that kind of uh, those kind of weapons. Victory seems to be the hardest word. And I mean, you pointed out well in that, that article we wrote that he hasn't said this. He hasn't said he wants Ukraine to win. But others here in Germany have. Yeah, indeed, Ben. So uh, Scholz, of course, has said that he doesn't want Ukraine to lose either, but he hasn't said he wants Ukraine to win. And others have, such as Defense Minister Pistorius, uh, such as the chair of Foreign Affairs Committee, um, Mikhail Roth, uh, who are both from the SPD, actually Scholz's own party. Um, they have said that, and other leaders from, from the Greens, from the liberal FTP, and, and also from the um, conservatives and the opposition have said it as well. Um, so it's really uh, the thing, the main issue here is that it's the chancellery that's calling the shot, and it doesn't really matter if there's others 
um, either in the governing coalition or in the parliament who uh, have other, other opinions. Um, so um, as long as it's the chancellor recalling the shots, um, that's the only thing that matters. It, it is really, and they, they certainly set the tone. And I think what we tried to highlight in that article is something that's relevant for our, our discussion now, um, is that there's part of it that's to do with international relations. And part of that reluctance to change, I think, comes from a reluctance to embrace the changing world and to embrace the systemic change that's going on and which would be accelerated by Ukraine's victory uh, where, when it happens in the, in the war, because that will accelerate the process of systemic rivalry between blocs organized around ideologies, uh, organized around democracies on one side and authoritarian states on another. And that process of block formation is, I think, something that the Chancellery is extremely wary of, extremely keen to avoid happening, even though during the Cold War, block formation was a key way of managing geopolitical conflict. And so that's a hesitancy, a fear of that future coming to be. And we could see that in the national security strategy as well. But I think there's also something Germany specific about this reluctance to change, which is dealing with the past and dealing with the change that happened last time. And so I think we've, most of us will be familiar with the, the process of change that Germany underwent after the Second World War, the process of atonement for the horrendous crimes that were committed, the process of national reinvention that in many ways... Um, look to embrace what, what Jürgen Habermas called a post-national society. And this post-national society uh, came together with being a post-victory society, a post-war society in every sense, and trying to move on from what they thought were the, um, the sins that underpinned the crimes of the Holocaust and the crimes of the Nazi regime. And that change was very successfully made. But now we see that changing from that change last time is extremely hard. And I think it's hard intuitively for some people here to grasp it's also hard because it's used very instrumentally by other groups in German society. So the, the pacifist movement here, who've been very strongly against supporting Ukraine, very much um, arguing that uh, Ukraine should negotiate, in effect, surrender and give up territory and, and let its people be, be oppressed, actually. Um, so I think there's something that we really wanted to cut to the heart of with this podcast, with Berlin Inside Out, is looking at that combination of what is specific about Germany and what is Germany's particularity, but also how that then factors into Germany's international relations and how those international relations act back on Germany. Well, let me uh, inject a little bit of optimism <laughs> into uh, the podcast. We've also seen some interesting public opinion polling in the last year, which I'd like to highlight very quickly. Um, as Ben sort of has argued earlier, the site and is here. It is sort of unevenly distributed depending on where we're looking uh, for it. But if we look at public opinion, that really is interesting. In January 2022, 73% of Germans were against delivering any weapons to Ukraine at all, whatsoever. Uh, as the months have gone by, as the last year and a half has gone by, we've seen a majority of everyday Germans start supporting military assistance to Ukraine um, but that hasn't always been enough, of course, uh, to encourage the government to act decisively, which is another uh, interesting aspect. Uh, the public seems to sometimes be a little bit more ready uh, for change than the government is, for example. Uh, absolutely, Aaron. And it's very interesting to note on, in that regard that actually as far back as April 2022, just after the Czechs and the Poles had delivered main battle tanks to Ukraine, 64% of Germans surveyed were in favor of also sending main battle tanks. Right. Then at that point, the Chancellery and other leading actors got involved in the debate and started to say this was a really bad idea, full of danger, full of escalation, and then public opinion figures dip. So what I think this really shows is the importance in foreign and security policy of elite discourse and of what 
um, what Britta and, and Yannick were saying about leadership here as well. And I think that the, I, the German public, I think, has certainly demonstrated that if leadership is willing to take it somewhere, that it's willing to go there. But we're not always necessarily seeing that leadership. That's right. And I think that's, that's something, uh, Roderick, we've been talking about quite a bit um, as well, is sort of leadership for what and what kind of leadership and what, what role Germany would play, what role Germans are comfortable with Germany playing. I'm more optimistic there about whether Titan Vendor is happening. God, I'm on the side of the optimists. What fun. Welcome to the team. Oh, wait, oh okay. It's us, we're, is it? We're wow. all optimists, really. Oh, really? I think Titan Vendor is happening. I think some of the bashing of Germany is unfair. The question, or one of the questions that we started with, Ben, was why is there Germany bashing when there's not Poland bashing or France bashing or UK bashing, at least not to the same degree? And I think part of that is that Germany's closest partner as you said before, see the potential of what Germany can offer. And they want Germany not only to move, but to be seen to move. It needs to be seen to succeed in the eyes of Washington and the Russians. So if there is slightly lopsided bashing, it's because actually underlying that, people want Germany to succeed. I think the issue is less what Germany is doing, because I think it is moving, but it's how it does it. And that's where the real problem is. At the moment, Germany misses the responsibility of being seen to do things in the right way from a British perspective. We would say we passed on the special relationship to the Germans or it was passed on by Biden. Yes, did we really have a choice? I'm that? not sure we did. <laughs> but nevertheless, when when the special relationship was a British thing, I think there was a strong sense in London that we need to be seen to behave in certain ways in Washington in order to give Atlanticists there a good case. Not only does Germany not do that, it doesn't even seem to be aware that it's the standard a bearer of the special relationship, that spooks people. And if it's not seeing the responsibilities, I think the second aspect is it's not seeing the, the opportunities at the moment. And I think that is, and this is something else we've talked about, there is an opportunity at the moment for Germany to reinvent its reputation a little bit. And I think that's a second aspect of the bashing. People bash Germany because they don't understand where it stands at the moment. And that sounds unfair, but I think if this government takes a step back and, and assesses the situation, it will see an opportunity to set the stereotype for its what is the stereotype that it wants to be reliable? And for the rest of the world, that's not a positive stereotype because it's come to mean dithering. And as you said before, it's also come to mean unreliable because the one measure that Schultz set, he's failed on. The last thing for me, I think, is we've packaged this up in, in the idea of, you know, we want Germany to be a team player. And that should be the stereotype that it sets for itself. What's really negative for us, I think, is that Germany's doing the exact opposite, that it looks at the weaknesses of other European European partners and rejoices in the fact that they have weaknesses that do not threaten Germany's standing. So instead of being a team player, it's Schadenfreude. That for me is what has to change. May I disagree a bit? Because like, isn't like a kind of irregularly regular outrage, like Europe-wide outrage about something that Macron said, like basically a new European pastime at this point? Like, I do think that there has been a fair share of like, especially Macron bashing as well. I mean, he brought it on himself to an extent by calling Putin all the time uh, for an extended period of time. But uh, I do think that also others get their fair share. So it's not just Germany. And the Brits do the bashing themselves. So it's kind of kind of harder for others, you know. Yeah, minute, minute all under there. No stranger to accusations of Germany bashing yourself. Um, just, <laughs> um, but you're, you're right. And what, what I think neither Roderick or I were saying is that there's not criticism of any of those countries mentioned. 
uh, where we think there's a bigger disparity is between the the level of bashing Germany gets, despite the fact it's been moving. And one of the reasons for that is partners don't know which direction it's actually moving in, what it's moving towards becoming. And so that's why then it's easy to throw stereotypes at it. And while there's Macron bashing, is there France bashing to the same extent? I don't I don't know. Is that also to do with expectations of how much France can actually deliver? And once again, is it a compliment in disguise to to Germany perhaps here? Um, but this this notion also of uh, reliability that Roderick mentioned relates to what Britta said before, I think, of stasis and stagnation actually being the case. And I think what's really frustrated a lot of Germany's partners, particularly in Central Eastern Europe, which is a region I, I know quite well, is that when Schultz has been seen to really consider things, think them through and so on, this is seen as dithering, the cost of which can be measured in Ukrainian lives, first and foremost, and can be measured in weakened European deterrence as well. And so this positioning as being reliable exactly leads to positioning as unreliable. So the the question of what Germany comes next also um, is extremely important and has some track record that Germany has reinvented itself before. So there's, again, a possibility to do this. This is a country that can do that. And so that's what I mean, we, we also think is worth uh, worth considering. And the notion of team power is one way to think about that, but not the only one. And it's the kind of debate that we actually want to kick off, as we said, to have con- the conditions in which we can consider those various alternatives between impossible and inevitable. I would add to this that there is this real problem with the long-term credibility of Germany's uh, uh, change of course in the Titanwende because, uh, because of the lack of long-term funding. Uh, and I think then there's also this uh, comparison with, for example, Finland and Sweden making this big, big decision to join NATO and implementing it uh, very swiftly. And also Poland, uh, the elephant in the room, uh, that is very massively uh, ramping up its uh, defense capabilities and doing it in a very swift manner. And uh, all of these comparisons also kind of show that it can be done faster. So I think that Germany's credibility problem is really the slowness of implementation. Yeah, that's that's right. And yet still you have some people here saying that slowness is a virtue. And that really gets on others' nerves, I have to say, at this point, especially given that we Germany may long, no longer be moving at the speed of shame, but it's still not moving at the speed of relevance or the speed of need for the geopolitical situation. Well, and ultimately, it's also under a bigger microscope, because when you are... Um, the largest economy in Europe when you are its most influential country, um, you know, being in both NATO and the EU, for example, of its size, um, then more is simply expected of you. It is, but this is also something that we we talked about with Roderick. Um, I think there's an assumption here that that size gives Germany the automatic right to be the team captain somehow. But actually, that's something that should be earned. And I think that's increasingly something that's felt by allies as well. And that is something I've seen in the last 18 months, is the scales falling from the eyes of Central East Europeans in particular, who, while always having a, an interestingly mixed relationship with Germany, had a certain level of deference um, coming from Germany's advancement, economic size, progress, etc. The realization that that may not have been all it's cracked up to be in the digital sphere, let alone else, elsewhere, um, has, I think, come together with this inability to deal with geopolitical shift in a swift and appropriate fashion. And so we're seeing others starting to challenge that assumed role. On the France bashing, it's the opposite picture, I think, of Germany. It's a president who does want to reinvent the national reputation and is stuck with a very clear stereotype that anchors him in something different. And the second thing for me is people have a sense from Macron, even though he blunders into these things, that at least he kind of revels in the debate and is able 
able to explain himself. Whereas the Germans, when they isolate themselves in Europe, there's this sense of a nation that's stuck in the headlights. When the French veto something, they enjoy that moment. The Germans are vetoing stuff at the moment and they seem surprised by themselves. It's a very different thing. So Aaron, over to you. Uh, At the same time as we're saying all of this, we are (laughs) keenly aware as well that this is a large country. Um, with a whole that takes a long time to understand. Uh, You have 16 federal states. You have a whole lot of uh, stakeholders. As Roderick mentioned earlier, you do have a three-party coalition uh, that's currently in government of three different political traditions. So if it seems like Germany is uh, acting slowly, there are sometimes uh, reasons for this, even if we would like it to act faster. And part of why we're doing this podcast is to help everyone understand those reasons. There's a lot of unfinished business when it comes to site and Venda. Some of those, uh, I think, as I've pointed out in polling, are clearly mindset. Some, though, involve uh, materials and, crucially, money. Uh, so let's start uh, with this question, how to judge a successful site and Venda going forward. I would come back to something that Ben said, which is the readiness of Germany to break with a cozy status quo. And I think it really does come to a decision whether they squeeze the last bit of value out of the European Union and European order as it stands, or whether they are ambitious about the future. If I talk to my Dutch friends, they're terrified because they look at how Germany has behaved in Europe over the last 20 years, and they've seen it squeeze economic value out of its eastern neighbours in enlargement and then squeeze value out of the southern member states in the Eurozone crisis, all of which has allowed Germany to grow at the expense of the European Union, whose international influence has shrunk. And if you're one of the original member states up in the northwest, you're wondering... Are you next? Yeah, are you next? It's not a question of Germany sort of actively squeezing value from you by making choices. It's just it's easier not to change and to trap countries in an unfair status quo than to radically shift stuff. Which is the other choice. Which is the other choice. If you asked Germans how the European Union is responding to what Ben described as the rivalry between autocracies and democracies, they would say, oh, we've got the Brussels effect, which is basically using the European Union's market size to spread German market standards abroad. That, for me, isn't lining up in a competition of values and you're missing the points. Is that what's necessary for success then? You have to not only be economically successful, but you have to link the sources of your prosperity to your political system and your values. And the Brussels effect, yeah, spreading your market standards... That sounds more technocratic than values-based, is what you're saying. And the people who write the market standards are large American firms and the and the you know, the people who like these big secure standards are Chinese firms. You know, Europe's nowhere and there's no proactive setting of the agenda, basically. The voice the voice of optimism there. Well, no, I mean the, the voice of hard choices. Like, come on, Germany, pull your bloody finger out. And I think it just reflects a loss of faith in the future. So this cheery full stop from me is have a bit of self confidence, Germany. You can do it. I think it's exactly what I've mentioned a couple of times already, that um, we need a long-term clarity and perspective, uh, especially on the financial side. Um, It just kind of, if we get back to the comparisons, uh, the the amounts of money that Germany has been very ready easily to throw into domestic things like um, this um, energy subsidy uh, package of 200 
billion, 200 billion euros, uh, which Scholz uh, fascinatingly called doppelwurms uh, last year. Um, of course, also 100 billion for the own armed forces is very needed, but also a massive sum. Now, um, Germany just, uh, or the government decided to subsidize this chip uh, a chip factory in, uh, in Eastern Germany with 10 billion. So these are quite massive sums that not everyone has lying around in Europe. And, uh, and, and it often creates this feeling of unfairness that Germany can subsidize itself. But then when it comes to, uh, for example, the by now fairly substantial um, help for Ukraine, it still kind of pales in comparison. So, so there is this kind of feeling that uh, Germany is still not prioritizing this because it's not putting the money in there. And, and there would need to be this long-term commitment to it. And of course, this news about, uh, again, like dodging on the 2% goal is uh, just a very bad look. Uh, successful Zeitenwende would just be something consistent. So having a strategic approach, and that is about prioritization, as Minna said, that we really have clear what are for Germany and for Europe and Germany together with its partners and allies, the most important things that we have to um, to push and that we have to really also put our money uh, at. And um, then also have this bold political will and the leadership to really do it and to shape it. And actually it's just about credibility as also Minna said. So There are so many things that are right that have been said in speeches and statements and everything, but then it's not done. And this would be already successful. Just do that, what Just you are through. talking about. Just, Just keep your promises. talk, exactly. So I, I don't think that anyone is really expecting miracles from Germany, but just walk the talk and prioritize and have a vision and really try to convince people to follow you on that path and also be a team player within um, Europe and NATO and your allies. The ideas are on the table. Well, yeah, let me, let me follow up on that because I think that's, that's it. I mean, for me, what a successful Titan vendor would look like would be uh, Germany re realizing what its role is, what the constructive role it can actually play um, is as part of a team and realizing what team it's actually on in a serious and proper way. That means reading the geopolitical situation to understand what those teams are and I mean shorthand of democracies and autocracies, uh, but also the teams it plays in in Europe, the teams it played in the wider democratic world. And to do that properly um, means understanding your proper calculation of interests and how those are formed together with allies and how those fit with your values. It means a good degree of self-awareness to what extent you are really living up to those compared to how you think you are and what um, what. Roderick and others have mentioned about, for example, the, the EU that Germany thinks it's made versus the EU that its partners see it as having made is quite a discrepancy that should be, should be accounted for, uh, not only in terms of those northwestern states that Roderick mentioned, but also in Central Eastern Europe, uh, the countries there that are rather sick of being kept in this uh, middle influence as well as middle income trap within the European Union. But also this crucial part of uh, team play, I think, is... Awareness of others' weaknesses, as Roderick said, and covering for those, not reveling in them, but actually covering for others' weaknesses as part of a strong team, but also letting others shine and letting others actually set the pace at times and be willing to go with them. So when the Baltic states have a terrific idea of how to deal with Russia, let them lead the way, let them lead the pace. 
And I think this, um, this points to, to understanding, again, what is really a team actually about and what is the role of leaders in that team. And there are leaders who can lead from the front. There are also leaders who lead from behind, who do the necessary water carrying work, who do the necessary support work to let the, the star striker actually score all the goals, um, to use a fairly hackneyed metaphor. But for me, this is, this is it. And so there's, there's a quote that comes to me from, uh, not from a footballer, but from a famous basketball player, Bill Russell, legendary captain of the Boston Celtics, who won 11 um, world championship titles. And he, he said, my ego demands for myself the success of my team. And I think that, understanding that for Germany would be a successful Titan vendor. That's all for this episode of Berlin Side Out. Thank you very much to our guests and to you, the listeners of our inaugural episode. We've got lots more coming up for you over the course of this season in which we'll explore in depth many of the issues that we've touched on today. Uh, from Germany's key relationships to policy rethinks, whether a Seitenbende is happening or not. And we're very excited to bring it to you here on Berlin Side Out. Uh, until next time, Auf Wiedersehen from Berlin. Uh, we hope you will join us. Tschüss.